Thank you for joining us on Marion Marbles, a podcast brought to you by the Marion County Library System. Together, we will explore the intriguing and mysterious history of Marion County in South Carolina. Hosted by library staff and lovable locals, you will be able to listen in via our website or your favorite listening application. Welcome to the first episode of Marion Marvels, a Marion County Library System podcast that explores the intriguing and mysterious history of Marion County, South Carolina. Today's episode dives into the Marion Library's origin, early tragedy, and the mysteries therein. Your hosts for today are me, Holly, the library director, and me, Holly, the library archivist. (laughs) How are you today, other Holly? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Um, This is kind of an exciting story. I'm excited to hear about it. I only know a very small portion of it. Um, I've heard slash seen so many different versions of it that I'm going to tell you a few different versions. How about that? (laughs) That sounds good. And we can decide which one we think is accurate. That sounds good. Um, I guess you kind of have to start with any story with the origin. So... The Marion Library is kind of interesting in that it is the second Carnegie in the state of South Carolina to be built. And if you're not familiar with Carnegie Libraries, Andrew Carnegie was a... If you're not familiar with Carnegie Libraries, Andrew Carnegie was a um, a very wealthy philanthropist in the uh, late 19th century. And he became one of the richest Americans, and he put that money to use to building libraries. And so essentially the requirements to get a library built in your community were that the community had to agree to continue to support it financially, and really that was it. I mean, as long as the city or or county that the building was being built in would continue to support that library, um, Carnegie would provide funding. Um, uh, He actually provided about $7,500 to build our library. I want to say it was at least a year-long process um, because you have to think they would have had to get approval from town and even though libraries, so at the time libraries were very much a thing but not so much publicly, a lot of them weren't publicly funded. So in Marion, The way the library worked before the town agreed to work with Carnegie and upkeep the library was that each citizen that wanted to be able to use the library had to pay $3 a year. But they did that on their own accord. It wasn't something that was orchestrated, is that the right word? Orchestrated by the town. They weren't in control of it or the ones. So were there individuals that were in charge of? I guess what the city or county's library would have been prior to becoming the Carnegie Library? Prior to becoming it, essentially what happened was a group of citizens got together. That's where Judge Woods comes into the picture. A lot of times you'll hear about Judge Woods when you talk about the library's history. There's actually a portrait of him that was painted by the WPA um, in the South Carolina room. And it, he along with several other citizens, really led the campaign to create that first library. So they're the ones that organized it, hired the first librarian, set up the space. Um, 
so at that time there was one librarian over it who was Kate Lily Blue, a local person. Actually a pretty awesome local person, <laughs> but a local person. Not to just say it like, oh, she was just a local person. No, um, Kate Lily Blue is actually pretty awesome for her time. Her brother was a, gen a very famous general in the Spanish-American War, and her father was also a famous general in the Civil War. Um, Where were these books and stuff housed? Because it was you know, the money was used to construct the library building itself, right? Yeah, but it did not pay for the books. The, they already had a collection going, and that was housed on... Um, it was in four rooms on the upstairs of, I think it was called Marion Bank, or I want to say Marion National Bank, but that doesn't, does that make sense? I think you're right. I think okay. that Marion did have a national bank. But it's just four little rooms, and believe it or not, the collection grew a good bit. And if you're in the Marion Library, the part that we're talking about is still exists. It is everything from the front door to... The large columns behind the computer. That's the original library. Okay. I did not realize that. Um, and I do know that, as you mentioned, um, Judge Woods, a lot of his own personal collection was donated to the library itself because down in the archives we have um, dozens of books that he had owned and he donated to help get the, the library up and going. Yeah. Um, actually, one of the not only donated, but one of the first stories that I read on the origin of the library before they even hired a librarian and set up the four rooms is that um, Judge, Woods, Judge Woods' own personal collection was so extensive that he would actually let community members borrow from him and would just keep a list of who needed to bring what back. And so he was kind of... He's a librarian. Yeah. He was a, an impromptu librarian before he even really had the idea for the town to start their own library. Um, and we, like you said, we still have a lot of those books. Some of them are downstairs. Some of them are actually still in circulation. Um, a lot of them can be found in the South Carolina room, and you can tell they're his because he signed them all. He did. He put, and that's how I, I know that, yeah, he signed every single one of his books. He was, still has his label and everything in there. He was committed to getting them back. <laughs> <laughs> well, he understood the value of a book. Yeah. Um, and I know, like you said before, that um, it was a fight with the city or county to get annual funds to then get Carnegie to agree to give the money. And in and researching some about the library, um, in 1904, um, the city of Marion, so not even the county, but the city um, designated $750 a year to give towards the library and while it today doesn't seem like a lot of money back then that was uh, probably close to tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to help every year with the library and you got to think um, put that in the perspective of the building itself the imagining the size of the building as it is now because as I said the original still stands that only cost $7,500 so, if you imagine that compared to the budget, that is a lot of money. Uh, definitely. Um, it, I mean, we're also looking at, you know, uh, almost 120 years ago. So, obviously, inflation and materials and everything else have I, I've gone 
I can't even say, I, you know, what, 500 times what they were back then? Um... One dollar in 1904 is the purchasing power of $33.29 today. So that's that's a good deal. I mean, I feel like that's kind of low, though. It doesn't seem like, yeah, definitely. But again, I think, you know, our today's money doesn't go quite as far. As no. Back then, so. no, it does not. <laughs> Thirty-three dollars isn't buy what a dollar bought back then. So um, it, it is just a quite different atmosphere. Um, but it was an exciting one to finally start the library here in Marion because the library did a ton of like first things. Is a lack of a better term. Um, can you tell me more about those things? Um, the Marion Library was actually one of the first tax supported in the state, so. That means that while now that's very commonplace, um, we're actually, the funding that the library has right now is through um, funding provided by the county and funding provided by the state. But it, back in the early 1900s, that was not common. And so the fact that the town was willing to set up a reestablishing tax just for the library, that was a big deal. Um, it also had the first bookmobile in the state. What did that look like at the time? <laughs> it was a mule and a cart, <laughs> but to be fair, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, we had the first VHS player. <laughs> I'm still pretty proud of that one. <laughs> I, that was a big deal um, yeah. at, at the time. We laugh about it now, but... To be able to come to the library and watch a movie was... Yeah, that was pretty much a big deal. Um, we also had one of the first summer reading programs in the state. When did that um, start? Uh, I'm not 100% sure because I found it on accident. Um, we have um, scrapbooks of the library's history. And I was flipping through it and I was shocked at how early it was. I would have thought that that was a, a more of a recent idea, but that goes a lot further back than I would have thought. So I might have to look into that. Yeah, that's interesting because I would have thought like you, like it probably would have co coincided with, you know, schools and their like requirement of, of reading. And AR is not but a couple of, of decades old. It's, yeah. it's not um, an AR for those that are listening and don't have a child in school currently is accelerated reader and these kids have to get a certain amount of points um, and read a certain amount of books and all that, which is wonderful because it promotes reading. Um, but so I would have thought the summer reading programs would have co co coincided with that, but yeah. uh, it predates that. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, after the library was built, it became kind of a centerpiece for the town. They called it the heart of the community. Um, it was beloved. And we know that in part because tragedy struck, unfortunately. On January 29th, 1929, the librarian was leaving, I believe her name was Ellerby. Let me just double check. Yeah, Nellie Ellerby was closing up for the night and she left and not even an hour later flames were reported to be coming from the library windows. As you can imagine, being mostly paper um, and at the time 
there was brickwork, but I believe the inside was, there was a lot of wood inside. Um, the library burned and in a way you would not imagine because I was also shocked to find out that there was actually an explosion and the wall facing the fire station. What direction is that? South? Uh, directions aren't my, my, my talent. Me either. Um. We're going to say it's <laughs> south. We're really not sure. That wall actually blew off and landed on a local gentleman who wow. was trapped underneath the bricks. His name was Charles Hennessy, and his brother actually had to lift the wall off of him. And he... And he wasn't just a citizen, though, right? He was a firefighter. I think he might have been a firefighter, which makes me wonder if there was a, a fire station there or yeah. close by. Yeah. It would have to be close by. Um, but his brother did end up getting the wall off of him, and he survived, but he had two broken hips and ruptured blood vessels and was taken to a hospital in Mullins. There were some other injuries, and... Interestingly enough, they were treated at a pharmacy on Main Street. But nobody really knows what happened with that. Um, a popular theory is that, so the way the library was heated at the time, because you got to think this was January, it was cold. Um, the way it was heated was with a furnace in the sub-basement, which if you're not familiar with the library, we actually have two basements. One is a newer basement that was built in 1974, and then one is their original, what we call the sub-basement, but it was a furnace room. It's believed that there was coal and wood down there, and the gases from the coal ignited, and that's what caused the explosion. However, nobody will ever know, for sure. Um, that being said, once the fire was out, despite the fact that the building was missing a wall, um, it was salvageable. Um, and they decided to rebuild. And they did it pretty quickly. They did it in 11 months. Yeah, it was pretty quickly. And I think um, where was, because it wasn't even just that the library shut down. It was most, the collection that survived was moved, right? So again, the heart of the town could continue. Yeah. Where, do you know where it was moved at? It was moved to a school. Mm -hmm. I want to yeah. say a junior it's, high school. Right. There, they were, the, the count, the city, was it the city or the county library at the time? So I know originally it was the city library. It was city because at the time that it burned, I think we were actually incorporated into district one school. It was part of the school system. Okay. So when the library burned, um, we were able to move the, what well, we, like I was there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nellie Ellerby was able to move the collection or what was salvageable from the collection to one of the schools. And she literally had to go through each one by hand and clean them. And she must have done a pretty good job because we still have a lot of the books that survived that fire. We do, and they are remarkable because um, if you flip through the pages, you can still see um, the heat damage, um, and it's not so damaged that you can't use them. They're, they're completely usable and, and really actually in very good condition, but you can still see the marks from the fire and the heat going across the spines or the, the pages of the book, and it's just very interesting. Um, 
to see how it sur it survives. The fire survives to this day <laughs> through the books. I remember I picked one up one time and I was thinking that it was brown and I flipped it over and realized that it wasn't a brown that it was just so dirty or discolored from the flames mm -hmm. that it was actually supposed to be red and the back color cover was still like a vibrant red. Wow. It was so weird. Yeah, it, and it's surprising because I mean, like, so much of the library was destroyed, but yet, and granted, I'm sure there were a, a certain amount of books that were destroyed in that as well, that we will probably never know exactly how many, um, but there are still so many that just, just hold the evidence of it. Um, and like you said, um, they decided to rebuild, and there's an, a newspaper article from the state newspaper in August of 1929 about it being rebuilt. Um, and in here, just as Holly said, um, it, it says how the library building being rebuilt um, and will be replaced nearly as possible as it was before the fire, and the exception of the assembly room, which will be added for club meetings. So they took this opportunity, the tragedy, to then yeah. continue and expand on what would be even more beneficial for our community. And um, it, they were hoping to be open by Thanksgiving. Um, and says, Marion people are, are loyal to the library as evidenced by the bond election, which was carried out in June of that year, 1929, no, 19, yep, still 1929, um, and despite the loss of one half of the of the books and, and many other handicaps which the library functioned under, um, it was closed for only one month, and they brought uh, Miss Nellie Ellerby and um, to the new location because um, it was just demanded that um, it reopen. Um, and in here at the bottom of this article, it mentions. A story I want you to tell about the the mysteries of the fire that we may or may not have solved. Okay. <laughs> so you're and I was thinking about that. They're probably wondering, well, how is this like a mystery? Or there's a few. First of all, no one knows how the fire started. There's guesses, but we'll never know that one. Second of all, thanks to Judge Woods, the library had some really unusual and nice pieces art pieces for a library um i don't know if the community knows this but we actually used to present possess a rembrandt nobody knows what the rembrandt looked like i wish they would have wrote it down <laughs> At least like the name of the painting uh, the name of the painting <laughs> a brief description but the rembrandt was in the fire and I believe it was um, slightly damaged, but not to where it couldn't be cleaned up and repaired. And, yeah. repaired. and that was repaired. I don't, nobody knows what happened to it since then. Um, and Judge was also gave us um, a Venus de Milo statue, which that drove us crazy for the longest time that nobody knew what happened to it. And we just wished that it was back because that would be such a neat piece. And interestingly enough, we recently discovered that it really didn't go that far. It's actually in a local business in Marion County. I won't say which one. I'll let y'all find it. But it is a Venus de Milo statue, and you can still see the damage to it from the fire. I got a. Um, I was looking at it, and you can see where um, 
a bit of fire damage and where pieces broke off of it. So that's kind of cool. Um, so how did you end up locating it in this local business? It was an accident. One of the staff members um, went there and they're like, you'll never believe what I found. And they sent me a picture of themselves with it. And I was like, no, I can't believe it. She lives. Which is interesting because who was the ownership truly at that point is what you wonder. But, you know, it does give a, a good scavenger hunt for, for yep. Marion. So see if you can find the, the penis. I believe what happened, we ended up finding out what happened. It, um, was sold at auction. Oh, which things like that, as horrible as that sounds, things like that do have to occur to survive. To survive. Yeah. You know? I mean, um, if I had to make the decision now to keep something like that or the library survival, I would sell it every, I would make that decision. Yeah. It, you know, it you'd comes, have to. You'd have to. It comes to having, you know, a, in your mind, a priceless artifact. Um, or being able to continue to pay your employees or serve your community as a as a entity that really is you know it's a public servant you, they don't we don't cost our community anything so yeah. it's a no-brainer on that decision um, um, sure. there is one more mystery oh I don't even know this mystery you don't even know this one because I just remembered it so the library actually has a cornerstone Okay. And if you don't know what that is, it's literally just stone on the front part of the building that says when it was erected. And what a lot of people don't know is that those cornerstones sometimes have cubbies in them where you can place things before they seal them up. Like a, like a time capsule? Yeah, like a time okay. capsule. Well, when the, fi when the fire struck the library... I don't think a fire strokes the library, but whatever. <laughs> uh, when the fire happened, they looked in the time capsule. I was so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think was in it? So this would have been from the construction, which was in, what, 1904, 1905? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with first guess a newspaper, because people love to put newspapers in time capsules. That's a pretty good guess. Maybe we should make that for the next time. Next time, or comment... What you think is in the um so we have a newspaper but there are many options at that point which newspaper it could be because our, our oh there's not a newspaper in there there's not so i was even wrong so there yeah you go. but just guess what you think is in the cornerstone and we'll tell you next time if you're right and next time too um you know just keep in mind that we are only talking about the library building here in marion the city of marion but we have other branches that have very interesting stories as well that one day we'll we'll also touch on so the, li the the library continues to be the heart of the entire county not just the city of Marion. until next time thank you for listening in please join us again next month for our second episode don't forget to comment with your guesses of what is inside the time capsule we will share the details before we get into the wonders of genealogy, a resource the library can help you with. And if you're interested in any of today's details, newspapers, books, and library staff are available to you. The library holds endless resources for all your literary, historical, and mystery needs. See you soon!